Alright, so we had gotten cut off before, but this is uh, a continuation of our talk about um, old uh, sex and the um, the desire that is built in versus the desire that is added on culturally. And that most of it is added on culturally. You'd be surprised at how much that is. It's probably more than 90%. That Achan Po and I actually had a conversation about this. And the situation with him is, is that he became a salmon in, a, a, a child monk. And then at the age of 20, he ordained. And so he has actually not just been a virgin his whole life, but as a monk, he has been explicitly not exposed to it culturally. And because of that, he was telling about it in the sense that there has been very little desire. Um, the same would be true in countries that, uh, and quite a lot of them do, do not have guns available to everyone. Thailand is one such country that, in fact, um, the only people who have guns in Thailand are cops or police. But not all the police have guns. And that if a cop does want a gun, he has to buy it himself. Okay, out-of-pocket expense. With that kind of mentality, the whole culture seems to be able to operate quite well, solve all of their problems without that kind of gun violence. Okay? Interesting. Think about it like that. That is because guns are both available and forbidden fruit that is causing the enticement with guns. And the same thing is true with sexuality, that it's, that it's both available and forbidden. Hmm. Okay, but, well, I was talking about direct experience, and that's... Uh-huh, but your direct experience of desire is mm -hmm. based upon that. This is something that you can begin to understand is, is that not all of your lust for sex comes out of biology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That your desire for sex would be kind of in the same way as the desire, uh, or let us say not desire, but but the uh, the impression or the longing or uh, um, the attitude that young men would have about a very, very expensive sports car, a Lamborghini or something, that when they see that car, uh, they, they're impressed with it, right? But if they'd never seen that car or any other car, and they saw that car in their old middle age, let us say for the first time in his whole life, a guy sees a Lamborghini and he has never seen anything but a horse cart. Mm -hmm. He's not 
he might have curiosity, but he's not going to have great desire for it. Mm -hmm. That's what we're trying to get at here is that the both the availability and the forbidden fruit quality of it is what drives the human mind in many, many things. Mm -hmm. uh, so with Achan Po talking about it like that, I began to understand more and more what sexuality was really all about. It's a cultural phenomenon, not a biological phenomenon by and large. And that you can see that in the animal world more easily in the sense that uh, most of the year, like the whole year, dogs, females and male dogs interact and play with each other and fight and all of that kind of stuff over territory. And sexuality is not an issue. Every butt is available for smell and mm -hmm. every butt gets smell. But when the, uh, the female dog goes into season and those hormones are released, then all the dogs are interested. Okay, so dogs are very, very, very um, <clears throat> olfactory oriented. That's why they got that great big snout. And we don't. Our olfactory systems don't work nearly as well as that of a dog. And part of the reason for that, by the way, curiously enough, is because the dog spends most of his time with his nose close to the ground where all the odors are. But humans, because we stand up, we're four or five feet from the ground. And so the most interesting things about our environment are four or five feet away from us because we don't get down on the floor and smell what's going on. We think that's dirty. We don't like it, okay? But that, don't like it, <clears throat> is a cultural thing. We're trained about what we're supposed to like and what we're not supposed to like. A counterpoint there uh, would be that culture is also a, a biological phenomenon in humans and that instincts are habits that have been practiced for many millennia, let's say. Absolutely, absolutely. So that seed is there. Mm -hmm. And the and also an aspect of um, sexuality that, that I find valuable, let's say, is the bonding. And I think that's the biological, biological role. It has um, failed, let's say, or one of the aspects that we have adapted to form, let's say, complex bonds and bigger societies. And it's I like absolutely agree with that bonding. And guess what? That bonding is not very strong in many cultures because sexuality is more powerful than the bonding. And the bonding is more healthy. That in fact, <clears throat> you know that when people let us say a couple who have been married together for 60 years. That's a celebration. Their 60, 60th wedding anniversary, that proves that they've got a bonding there that most couples don't have. I remember even my uh, when I was in high school, the Baptist preacher was talking about this kind of thing, of uh, the difference between the sexual attraction that brings two people together versus the bonding 
of friendship and cooperation. That my relationship with Tam is gone down from say five or 4% down to about 0%. That's not part of our relationship, but the bonding is very, very strong. Okay, so that bonding I agree with. Not only is it the bonding of one-on-one, -on -one, but it's the bonding of each individual one of us with our environment. To bond with your environment, to become at one with whatever is around us. And I would say that instinctually that has something to do with sexuality, but not very much. <clears throat> And so, uh, for instance, the monks will bond with each other and become very, very close friends without any, uh, let us say, any even purifications of uh, sexuality. That it's just doesn't matter, non-existent. I would also go to say that clothing this is very interesting about the clothing, because in the story of Adam and Eve, when they first started making discriminations, you know the story, have you heard my story or my take, Vika Buddha Das's take on uh, the story of Adam and Eve? Yeah, that uh, desire is the, what gets you out of paradise. Well, no. That's no. not the, it's not desire that gets us out of paradise. It's exactly. our judgments. Our judgment, of, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. judgments of good and evil, right and wrong, yeah. good and bad. Okay. <clears throat> so that whole issue about the sexuality that I was mentioning there is making it desirable. Getting the little guys to judge that it's wonderful, it's good, I got to have it and then forbidding them from getting it, which makes them want it even more. Okay. But in, in that story, the desire came before the judgment, like Eve's desire to eat the, the fruit. Well, the, no, the fruit is result, like the fruit of your loom, the fruit of your labors, the fruit of your loins. The fruit in this case is not an apple or a banana or a fig. Oh, okay. That's not the kind of fruit that they mean. The eating of the fruit means you have to put up with the results of your behavior. Eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil means that you no longer live in paradise. Now you're judging your paradise as good and evil. Okay. And the funny part about that story is, is that the next thing that happened was is that they started wearing clothing. The knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong, back and forth, et cetera, like that, is the original reason or cause for humans to start wearing clothing. The question originally was, is that did the clothing wear the hair and the fur off of the human, or did humans put on clothing because they lost their hair or their fur? And it looks like 
that we could have a strong argument for that the hair um, <clears throat> wasn't necessary anymore because we started wearing clothing for other protections. That fur is great stuff up to a point, but armor is even better. And so that whole idea of wearing clothing. So if we look at it from the perspective of um, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then the clothing would be there for, for many reasons because there's more than just beauty in the eye or the mind of the beholder. There is ugliness too. You want to cover up the ugly. You want to not expose it. So um, not all humans are beautiful. Those that are not beautiful need to become beautiful by putting on clothing. Okay, so it's already that we've lost our paradise. The human body is no longer just okay the way that the dog's body is okay. Now we've got to cover it up. We got to hide it for some reason or another. And you would say that, oh, well, we want to uh, cover up women because men desire women. And the answer to that is no. Men desire women because they cover up. Because they cover up, they make it desirable and forbidden. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you recognize that it's both desirable and forbidden, and this is part of the reason why clothing has become there, you can also see how so much of the clothing is, in fact, trying to make it both desirable and forgiven, or, or forbidden. A bikini is a perfect example of that. It's desirable. We're highlighting that, that crotch, but it's forbidden mm -hmm. because it's covered by the highlighting. Mm -hmm. And it draws our attention to it, right? So when we recognize that, that this is a lot, a lot of the sexual desire has to do with learned behavior, not necessarily biological behavior. That is not, it's, it, it, let us say that the genes that you have are triggered. They're triggered or, or the sexual desire is triggered. So now we need to look both at the desire itself and the triggering mechanisms because it's the triggering is the problem in Western society. That you want it because you're supposed to want it. You want it because it's, it's desirable and they're intending for it to be desirable. But it's also forbidden, which makes it even more desirable. So there's a lot of other cultural stuff that goes along with that, that is highly unusual in our society, probably less than 1% of all lasting relationships were initiated by the female. Almost all of the relationships are because the guy is in pursuit, because he's taught to be in pursuit. It's part of the male culture that we live in and that the women are supposed to resist, are supposed to play the game of hard to get. 
And so it becomes a chase, but it's a cultural chase. It's a social chase that's built into our society and that we can begin to experiment and play games with that. And one of the things that I would highly recommend to though I've, it's got some disadvantages that we can discuss a little bit later, but the whole point is to start turning that around. How do we turn it around is by you recognizing that um, women have their own responsibility in this game and that you can turn the game around. That in fact, there are many places where this game is turned around, or at least a few places that's notable. One is February the 29th. That day rolls around once every four years, so it's one day at about a thousand. February 29th mm -hmm. is the day when girls invite boys rather than all the rest of the time the boys pursue the girls there's also another word for that called sadie hawkins mm -hmm. perhaps you've heard okay. that term yeah right. you talk about it right we've already talked about that so the sadie hawkins is the idea that the guy will be receptive but it's the girl's job to do the pursuing and that's the way that we can start as domadus to start looking at it is, is that uh, the women that come into our lives come into our lives. They're not drug into our lives that we don't go and pursue them, that they do all of that themselves. Mm -hmm. And you yeah, can nice. then, then you can be receptive to that, that in fact, to be honest with you, that's the relationship that I had uh right from the very beginning with Pam that in fact to be honest with you I told her that I was Muslim and that I wanted four wives just to get rid of her <laughs> <laughs> and she drove off but she drove back the next day mm -hmm. she did she she called my block <laughs> she went to meet you at the temple pardon she went to meet you at the what? Uh, no, I didn't meet her at the what, but I met her through someone at the what. But in any case, um, we, it, that's the way of beginning to look at it is, is that if you find a girl who wants you bad enough to hang out with you, <laughs> then you can't stop her because you don't want to stop her. And then, in fact, my relationship with Tam has been a marvelous relationship, even though that I consider her the boss because Thailand is a matriarchal society anyway. And, and women here in Thailand can get pretty bossy. <laughs> but the guys in Thailand um, understand that that's the kind of culture that, that we live in. And so I wind up uh, with Tam taking care of me in every possible way. She is my um, chauffeur. She does all of the shopping. She does all of that kind of stuff, leaving me with basically nothing to do but to sit around and watch her. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but I trust her. 
I trust her uh, in ways that I, because I've known the way that she trust, that she's dealt with other people, that she's like, like you would hear in the West, uh, a man of his word. In other words, if she says something, she's she'll die before it doesn't happen. Going to make sure. So if she says yes, I'm going to buy this piece of land, she'll buy that piece of land. Right? Doesn't take a signature. That's the kind of thing that I can count on for her that she is honest. Uh, but I wouldn't have pursued her in any stretch of the imagination ever in my life. But she pursued me, and when she came, I says. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So if you can look at it from that perspective, to turn all of this cultural stuff around and be receptive, you might find someone who is absolutely uh, a good opportunity for you for bonding mm -hmm. rather than for sexuality. That with sexuality, we're looking at it from the perspective of uh, <clears throat> desirable, beautiful, and that kind of thing. And so that gives rise to um, <clears throat> women being pursued, and that gives you the um, makeup industry, the fashion industry, uh, uh, the accessory industry, even a lot of medicine is built upon Botox and cosmetic surgeries and all of that kind of stuff just for women and sometimes men to make themselves visually desirable. And that visually desirable comes from our culture. If Seventeen Magazine or Cosmopolitan had fat, plumpy girls, then that would be our society. That in fact, I know that that's true in India. If you know Bollywood, if you have been to India and have watched Indian movies that, that are in the local Indian languages that haven't leaked out to the West, those women and men who are the heroes and the heroines of those movies are all quite plump. They're fat. <laughs> intentionally fat with the Indian mentality that if you're poor, you're thin, you're skinny, you don't have enough to eat. And so if you were in fact wealthy and desirable and good looking and well adorned and all of that kind of stuff, then that means that you're going to be fat. So their culture then is the most desirable um, uh, females. Uh, on uh, Indian television or uh, Indian movies are much fatter than your average Indian girl. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Now, why would fat be desirable in India and then be desirable in the West without having some cultural influences involved with that? Because we can't. <laughs> well, in other words, you're educated as to what's beautiful. Yeah. 
Yeah, being educated as to what's beautiful, you begin to recognize that you can uneducate yourself. Or you can add new education to recognize that it is not the girl who is beautiful. It's the clothing, the makeup, and, and the postures and the other things that are attractive. But they do that intentionally as part of the culture. It's the advertisement. And in the West, the advertisement is more important than the product. Mm-hmm. Okay. But whenever you see a girl, you can see then, or you can say that, oh, she look, she's got 10 or 15 or sometimes $2,000 worth of makeup on. She probably doesn't have $2,000 worth of makeup unless she's being made up for photographic shoot in a magazine, right? Those kind of people have really, really expensive hairdos and whatnot like that to make them picture perfect. But that's what you're seeing. They advertise that. The makeup that you see on the street is not the girl that you get. Yeah, they're not the yeah, same thing. It has a, a lasting effect even when faced with reality. I, I've noticed that with uh, McDonald's, for example, that even though the burgers themselves are like uh, when you look at them, they're kind of bland in the menus and the advertisement. There's food photography. And I like part of my enjoyment of the burger is the brand. Mm-hmm. That's it. So can you separate the brand from the burger? <clears throat> yeah, I've done it with burgers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what they do with hamburgers is what they do with makeup. Mm-hmm. It's the advertisement and all of that kind of stuff that makes it enticing. They intentionally make it enticing, whether you're talking about the girl wearing Max Factor or you're talking about Ronald McDonald's and Uh, the Hamburglar and all of that stuff that McDonald's does um, as part of their advertisement to get people to buy their product. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so uh, if you can see the girl and recognize for yourself that all oh, this girl that's presented with this clothing and this makeup and this posture and all of that kind of stuff is not the girl that you would marry, that it's not the same thing. That's the first thing to recognize. The second one is to recognize that you do like the paint job. Mm-hmm. They work really hard. They spend a lot of money and a lot of time putting on that face, putting on that paint job to make it look beautiful. We can at least appreciate that, yes, they did a good job. And by all uh, standards, the face is beautiful but I don't want the face. Just because I like it doesn't mean that I want it. Mm-hmm. Because a whole lot of girl comes without the makeup. <laughs> All right. Now, normally what happens is, is that the guy will see the girl and want her and drive away thinking about her, and but he knows nothing about her. Mm -hmm. All he can see is the appearance. 
not yeah. recognizing that she's had two ex-husbands, she's got two children at home, and she's got a mother that hates every boy that comes around her. And so when you get her, you're going to have five enemies because her two kids are going to hate you, her two exes are going to hate you, and her mother is going to hate you. But we don't see any of that. All we see is the paint job. Yeah, we talk ourselves into excitement. Right, and the paint job is there to make things enticing and exciting. Mm -hmm. And so we can congratulate them because they're actually successful at making themselves look enticing and exciting. But I don't have to be enticed and I don't have to be excited. That's up to me. If I'm wise, I can recognize and see yeah. what's going on. In the stage that I'm in right now, it's sometimes I look at a, a friend, a girlfriend, and I get like a, like a dash of excitement. And my reaction is to look away because I don't want to get excited. I just want to socialize. Mm-hmm. What would be the... That's guarding the eye door. Congratulations. That's a good move. Mm -hmm. That if you see the girl and see her for what she really is, there's no excitement there. If you see her and become excitement, then the better thing to do is to guard the eye door, is to move your eyes away. Mm -hmm. Then what would be the next direct step in this process that's not a process? Well... The next step would be, um, it depends upon where you're going. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is the next step north, south, east, or west depends upon where you're going with this. If you're going towards happiness, then there's probably uh, no place to go other than to receive this information and to start watching and guarding your eye door. Mm -hmm. Or you can, in fact, enjoy what you see and then guard the mind door rather than the eye door in the sense of I like it, but I don't want it. That's a major, that little statement will really help you a lot. I like it, but I don't want it. Yeah, I hear you. Then I like it, but I want it and I want it and I got to have it and I got to pursue it. You can yeah. say, I like it, but I don't want it because we recognize how much trouble as well as all kinds of other stuff will come along with the bait. You got to recognize that bait is put out there, but it's only put out because there's a trap. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that school will go under that box to get that bait and then the stick's going to get pulled. <laughs> All right. So when you recognize that that's it's all about a bait and switch or a bait and trap. <clears throat> um, because we all look at it from a perspective of selfishness. Do you want the girl only because of the sexual training and the genes and the hormones that you have? And that we're looking at it from the present moment. And you don't recognize that um, there's going to be bills that come. Are you willing to pay the bills? 
you buy a car, you got to pay the mortgage. You buy a house, you got to pay the mortgage. Most people think about, oh, I own the house. You don't own that house. The bank owns the house, and they'll prove it someday to you mm -hmm. by taking it. And so when we say marriage till death do us part, it's not the marriage, it's not the ceremony. It's the bonding that keeps people together. And so looking in that regard for bonding, that in fact, what happens with, uh, you've, you've heard of guys marrying their childhood sweetheart? Yeah. Okay, what that means is that the bonding happened long before the sexuality. Mm -hmm. So they naturally were there for, for the bonding more so than for the sex. They might have been curious and interested in the sex, but the bonding was also there. They played together. Mm -hmm. And I can see that happening. In fact, right now we've got a neighbor. Um, actually, he's the grandson of the landlord. And so uh, he's over here on a regular basis and he and Kitty play with video games and whatnot like that. And I can see the bonding that they have together. Now, an old man like me knowing what's going on, I'm not going to try to predict the future, but when Tam wants to move to another house, I'm saying, no, we want to stay here because Kitty's got a bonding situation going, even though she's nine, I want her to have those kind of bonding non-sexual relations. And not yeah. only that, but she would be a good catch and he would be a good catch for both of them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm just musing because I don't know what the future is going to bring, but I can see that childhood bonding going on. And if you can think about it from that way, that what you want <clears throat> is to find a mate that you can bond with, not fuck. <laughs> and in our society, it's the other way around that bonding is almost accidental. Mm -hmm. And that in, in fact, in most marriages, the bonding doesn't happen. Because if it did, you wouldn't have divorces, but the divorces are because the bonding didn't happen. It was this, the relationship was built upon sex. And when the sex ran out, so did the relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm curious that you're talking about bonding always like it's projected to the long term. And um, to me, the experience of bonding is nurturing and mm -hmm. it does not always entail a long commitment. Like, for example, my my idea of uh, the near future is to in a couple of years travel and I'd like to do it by myself. And although I have a relationship right now that's been going on for a couple of years, I don't see it going further, like, let's say no more than two years to say something. But I still appreciate that relationship right now. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, all relationships are temporary. The, when I'm talking about bonding, I don't necessarily mean the bonding that lasts for a lifetime, but mm -hmm. often they do. They often last for long periods of time. But yeah, there's been times when I have bonded with other people, but it didn't last. I've had mm -hmm. bonds with other monks, in fact, and it didn't last. So we're not talking about that it has to last in order to prove that the bonding was there. 
that the body can be there, but all things come to an end. Everything is temporary. But the point that I'm making is, is that uh, most relationships uh, have, uh, let us say, not a good balance between bonding and sexuality. Mm -hmm. That bonding is the more important part. And yet people get together because of the sex. And so this going coming back now to the issue of Sadie Hawkins, of letting the girl do the uh, the uh, let us say the pursuit and uh, part of the bonding. That it's not just sexuality, that it has to do with friendship and companionship and whatnot like that. That in fact, uh, traveling is often better done with someone that you're bonding with. That makes it much more convenient. Mm -hmm. You can watch each other's bags. Uh, you don't have to. See, if you travel alone, that you've got to keep your stuff with you all the time, especially if you're traveling in places where if you set something down, it's going to get picked up. You got to yeah. hold it. I plan to visit friends, though. I can leave my stuff at their house and then wander. <laughs> OK, so you've already got that issue taken care of. Right. So there's advantages and disadvantages for traveling in groups. And generally, the bigger the group, the more disadvantages there are to it. <laughs> so traveling alone is best. Traveling with two people has some advantages, but three and more not a chance. Now mm. you're going to have arguments and all kinds of stuff going on with that. So uh, traveling would be better done uh, either in one at a time or in, in pairs at the best. And so uh, only in the sense of, of the bonding. Now, if the bonding is strong, you can in fact go and to go travel. And when the traveling is finished, if the person is available, you can come back. Normally that doesn't happen. Normally when a breakup happens, it's broken. Very rarely do people get back together once the relationship is separated. It happens. Yeah, they do, it's often not a good idea. <laughs> Sometimes when they get back together, they just rehash all of the original problems in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things then that we can look at from the uh, perspective of the Buddha in factors of Sutta is number 31 in the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha is giving advice to laymen. And one of the advices that he gives is let the wife be the boss, that she's the one who decides everything. In our patriarchal society, the man decides everything and the woman has to influence him. But in a matriarchal society, the women make all the choices and the husbands only um, add to that. But the women are the boss. Now, I can see that in Thailand, the, possibly the reason why this is a matriarchal society is because it's a Buddhist country. And that the men 
will in fact go along with the Buddha in the sense of letting the women be the boss. That gives you complete freedom to um, practice the Dhamma. And another way of saying that, the freedom to not do much of anything, to let the women be the boss and let them do what they want to do. Let them choose the house and the car and the clothing and all of that kind of stuff. And we can just be happy and easy going. The funny part about it is, is that this is one of the reasons why so many um, uh, cross-cultural marriages fail. Men who come to Thailand, they'll find a sweet young girl in Thailand, a Thai girl, and not recognize that he's not marrying this Thai girl. He's marrying her whole family. And it and that what your your addition to that family is going to work against you. What I mean by that is when a girl marries a farong, that gives her status in her family, and she winds up being the matriarch. When a girl marries a farong, what's that? A farong is a Westerner, someone who comes oh. from another culture, a European. In fact, the word farong comes from the word foreigner mm. uh, and French. Mm. Okay. Okay. So the so the farong actually, uh, if he understands that he's joining a matriarchal culture, then he can fit in and have a really easy life. If he wants to be the boss, he's got enemies. <laughs> and so he has to come out of that patriarchal mindset into uh, the mindset of going along to get along, but he can either do that and resent it or he, he can do it happily based upon his wisdom. So that's kind of the position that I'm in, but you can set that up in whatever situation that you're in is to mentally in your own mind give her <clears throat> your your girlfriend the benefit of every doubt anything that she wants to do you're kind of okay with it as long as it doesn't entail me um making like too much effort well, it depends upon your bonding. If you are well bonded to her, then she will have your best interest at heart. If you're not well bonded, then she will take advantage of you. Mm -hmm. No, it's like um, uh, last week we had a trip planned and I didn't feel like going out. And I told her with some time in advance that I'd rather not go because uh, I wanted to stay home and chill. And she was like, "Yeah, it's okay. I don't, I don't want it. I don't want you to go because of commitment or, or compromise." And that was the end of it. Okay, so that's that's part of the bonding, part of the uh, the commitment. How's she going to uh, handle it when you say you want to take a hike? Mm -hmm. Like literally or figuratively? Well, in the <laughs> sense of go travel. Oh. Uh, yeah, I've warned her. <laughs> Pardon? I've warned her. Okay, all right. So it sounds like that you're going off in the right direction. Yeah. 
But if you have the loser's mentality, oh, poor me, I've got a girlfriend, I better keep her because another girlfriends are not possible. No. Okay, which is actually part of the Western culture, this whole idea of a soulmate, the whole idea of till death do you part, and all of that is partially the issue of forbidden fruit. Mm-hmm. But or if you also, look at uh, resource you, scarcity. <laughs> pardon? Like um, sexuality makes the other sex seems like a resource, and there's also the idea of resource scarcity. Right, the scarcity of the resource. Oh, right. Okay. Well, guess what? There, I. <laughs> When I was practicing and learning piano, one of the recital pieces that this teacher gave me, I don't know whether she was trying to teach me a lesson or not, because it was only this piece of music. But the name of the piece of music was, there's lots of good fish in the sea. Mm -hmm. There's lots of good fish in the sea. The sea, there's lots of good fish in the sea. Now, a 14-year-old boy is going to hear that sea as his community and the fish are the girls. Mm. There's lots of girls out there that we don't need to chase one of them. That mm -hmm. in fact, if you sit down and relax, all kinds of fish will come around you. Yeah. That's Other idea point. connected to that is that uh, you need a certain amount of time. And another myth is that at a certain window of your life, to make uh, meaningful bonds. And after some time, it's harder to make that uh, type of quality bonds. Uh, I would say that the bonding doesn't have to do with anyone's individual age. It has more to do with the mentality, their mental state at that time. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you the story that we kind of figured out from ancient, ancient times. We can see the remnants of that in the sense that there's something about the age of six for a child. That about the age of six is when we put them in school. In India, the age of six and in Africa, the age of six is when we put those kids in the field or put them in table waiting in a restaurant that kids are capable of work at the age of six, are capable of being productive members of society. They may be fully ignorant members of society, but they can still, they're capable of work. All right, in the very, very old days, that meant that the age of six was about the age of reason. Not only that, but in the old, old days, and, and still in some cultures, we don't have the quality of ownership of the child the way that we do in the West. Because it's a patriarchal society, generally we see it as the husband owns the children and is responsible for those children. And if uh, there is a fight, it will be between the husband and the wife as to who gets the kids, but it's either mommy or daddy. In other cultures, and Thailand is an example of that, the children don't belong to mommy or daddy. They belong to the grandmothers. They belong to the families. And so if there is a divorce, which is kind of rare in Thailand, if there is a divorce, then the mother of the son gets the boys and the mother of the uh, wife 
gets the girls. And even that can get mixed in together because these old grand two grandmothers didn't get divorced. It was the husband and wife who got the divorce. They're still mm-hmm. best friends. That in mm-hmm. fact, they were probably friends before the mom and the dad got together. Mm-hmm. They got together because of these two old grandmothers that put them together. All right. And so in that regard, the child is a community property, not the property of the husband or the wife. So if we can change that mentality, we can see that in some cultures, when a child is six years old, there is no longer a great need for the father. We don't Mm -hmm. need the father at the age of six. After the age of six, the kid can take care of himself. And not only that, but he's got all of these women in his life to give him the guidance that he needs to take care of himself. And daddy is unnecessary. If you can see it from that, you can see that in the old, old days, marriage had to do with ownership and property of the wife. This is part of the reason why marriage has fallen down in our culture is because women are getting their own, uh, uh, let us say, standard. They're coming up. They're equal to men. And because they're equal to men, women are no longer culturally required to get married. That they can have kids if they want to without the man. Now, in 1950, that was not at all possible. You had to get married and you had to stay married. And so that's the the background that we're raised with is this conflict between sexuality and the bonding. And the point is, is that historically, the idea of a lifelong marriage never did exist. What existed was when dowries and ownership of the daughter got into the man's mind. Oh, I've got a daughter. I have raised her now for 15 years and spent all this money for her. I want $100,000 for this daughter. You got the money, you can have her. And the other side is, is that, oh, well, if I buy this girl from you, She's mine and I can keep her and do anything I want to her with her. And she's mine for the rest of time. Okay, this is where the whole uh, mentality of marriage came from. It has to do with ownership and control based upon price and dowries, that kind of thing. That's the history of marriage. Now that we're coming out of that slowly, there are some bumpy roads um, ahead in the destruction of marriage because we don't need marriage. Marriage was a bad convention, a bad idea based upon greed all in the first place. And not only that, but if that old man sells his daughter, he's got to guarantee a couple of things. He's got to guarantee two things, in fact. And the best way to put that to be guaranteed is that she's a virgin. What is that? When she gets married, the, she's not pregnant because she's a virgin. And if she gets, when she gets married, if she's a virgin, she doesn't have STDs. Mm. Right. So that's why guys uh, in our society, the the high privilege is done with with virginity. Well, guess what? Virginity now is much more of a medical issue. 
In other words, STDs, we can take care of that with medicine. Pregnancies, we can take care of that with medicines. We do not need to have this old mentality uh, that came out of the Middle Ages. That, mm -hmm. uh, that in fact, medicine has changed quite a lot and given women a huge amount of freedom that they didn't have just, what, 50 years ago. Birth control pills. They've only had those for like 50 or 60 years. Penicillin and other things like that, uh, antibiotics, we've only had those for like 70 years or so. Back in the 1950s, before that, STDs were a big, big problem. Now, it's rare. Even if a guy or the gal gets something like chlamydia or whatever like that, it's a discussion. It's a... a, it's a uh, uh, a kitchen table discussion item rather than a dire emergency. Yeah. So, but because times have been changing, we can recognize that some of these old mores don't fit anymore. And we're going kind of back to really primitive times in the sense that um, the father is not needed after the age of six. Back in really primitive times and in many cultures, a father is not necessary. But in our culture, he's got to pay child support. He's got to take care of the kids, even if they're 15 or 20 years old. And so the, the government gets involved. The thing, by the way, on the side about that is, is that in Thailand, the government has nothing to do with child support. There is almost nothing like child support in Thailand. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You know why? Because of the, the reason, family structure. Because of the family structure, right. That that kid's going to take care of his parents or his children because his mom is actually doing the taking care of his kids. And if she needs help, she's going to go get it from him. It's your kids, you know. You had <laughs> them. I'm taking care of them. How about a little money? <laughs> and that's very interesting because uh, uh, I've, I've seen that... Uh, up close and personal <laughs> in in the sense of uh, um, being around kids like that because of Tam's uh, daughters. So I've learned a lot about Thai culture by looking at her family structure and the way that things operate there. Um, and so, uh, and then extrapolating that to the rest of the culture because uh, it's not a unique situation. But getting back to the point about it for you, you're now discussing the issue that you've already got a relationship. What do you do with it versus what a lot of the guys are talking to me about is, is that here I am single. What do I do about that? Mm -hmm. And so you're in a different situation. You've already got a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's not the issue. That's not the problem. The problem is not the issue of sexuality. The problem for you is uh, the resiliency and the, the lasting part of the, uh, the relationship. In other words, how do you end a relationship if that's what you want to do? Mm -hmm. Or can you go travel without ending the relationship? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um... 
I guess my my uncertainty right now is on her end that she can that she's making sound decisions to ensure or to um, yeah that make her happy because I the one of these days I ask her uh, what do you what would you like to your life to be in in a couple of years to be like. And she was like, I don't know. And up until now, these couple of years, uh, we've like we've never planned much of anything, and we've just stayed together because we like each other. Um, but I'm not sure if she's mm, making the decisions that will lead her to a future that she will like. And my priorities right now are, uh, well, first the. Um, the Dhamma, um, establishing a good practice and, and also um, finding a sustainable way to, to make money without working much. And that's it. Oh, well, an easy, easy way for that is to let her go work. <laughs> Then you don't have to. She doesn't like to, to work that much. Oh, well, then she's a Dhamma dude, too. Yeah. So why don't you take her traveling and the two of you go together traveling? Why do you have to sit at home uh, pointing fingers at you work? No, you work. Because <laughs> I was sold on the idea that sex with other women is good and I want to try the international <laughs> experiences. But it's it's something like a, a capricho um yeah something an idea that i had and it's not necessary i know but it, it's just i have this uh resistance to have a, a a long relationship i guess well let me say this about things you remember the song that i was singing about there's lots of good fish in the sea Yeah. There's something that each one of those fish has in common, and that is that they all are fishy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what I mean by that is playing the field is dangerous. What, what? The field, well, Uh, it depends upon what culture that you're in, but you can cause troubles culturally. You can cause problems um, emotionally. You can cause medical problems. There's all kinds of things that can happen. So be careful. Be alert. Be awake. Oh, wait, you're talking about cheating. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I meant I'll like let, I'll leave ending that word the... for you to use. <laughs> <laughs> I meant ending the relationship. Well, the ending of the relationship you've just confessed is because you want to cheat. Not cheat because I would have ended it. <laughs> well, if you did cheat, that would end it, right? No. All right. Well, then wanting to cheat doesn't necessarily end it. No, it doesn't. Okay. Yeah. Okay, then I guess the bottom issue maybe is that I'm more self-centered or dhamma-centered and she is 
getting she's in general more excited about us spending time together and stuff this maybe that's the sadie hawkins thing but i i don't know if someday i i will lose interest yeah then i guess i can end it then okay all right all right so one of the things that you can plan on is is that it's it's necessary to guard the eye door Mm-hmm. Not just for you, but for her. In fact, one of my other students has talked about that, that um, there they are on the beach and he sees a bikini walk by mm-hmm. and he sees it. And that causes trouble because he's watching rather than guarding his eye door. He's loving mm-hmm. the one he sees rather than loving the one he's with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this is an important point about jealousy that women uh, feel insecure. Now, if the girlfriend is absolutely secure in your relationship because the bonding is really solid, then it's okay for the husband or the boyfriend to use his eyes and to look. Mm-hmm. But if he does that and says, I like it, I want it, now he's going off in the wrong direction. If he can go and say, I like it, but I don't want it, and I can stay here, and I'm happy, and she can see that, yeah, he, he can see it, and he likes it, but he doesn't want it, and I trust that, then there's no problem with that relationship. But generally, one or the other of them are going to say he likes it, he wants it, and now jealousy comes up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you're going to be with her, guard your eye door. Don't go gawking around. Yeah. Watch what yeah. you're doing. Because if you uh, start um, uh, looking at for stuff, she's going to catch you looking for stuff. Mm-hmm. I am <laughs> sort of careful about that. What you made me think about uh, that all fish is fishy. Uh, since, <laughs> since I was uh, little, I've always been, I've always fallen in love since I was like two years old. And uh, when I started dating, when I began puberty and stuff, um, I never, I've still to this day, I've never had the experience of get, getting together with a girl that I was infatuated with, you know, that made my heart race and, and everything because... I got too excited to have like a normal relationship. And I think that's an experience I still want to have. But what I'm not sure about is that what part of it is like being sold on the idea of that uh, romanticism and what part is uh, a dutiful investigation of seeing fish for what they are. <laughs> okay. Well, when you recognize that not only are there a lot of good fish in the sea, but they all taste fishy. They're all the same. Nookie is nookie. That's just it. Everything else has to do with beauty and desire that's in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Okay. So guard your eye door or guard your mind door in in that way to recognize that yeah, there's women all over the place. 
that doesn't mean that I gotta have any of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That I, I can see that on a regular basis, that it happens that we see something and we like it, and because we like it, we want it. Mm -hmm. And the way that you can either stop that, one of the two places, either you can guard your eye door so that you're not looking at that stuff because you know you like it and you want it, or you can look at it and decide that you like it, but you don't want it. The problem is coming when you want it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want it. And it's even worse when you want it and you can't have it. Mm -hmm. You want it and you can't have it. And that's the situation that you're in right now, is that you want it and you can't have it. Yeah, I want it, can't have it, but I'm patient and I'm sort of preparing to be able to have it. Oh, all right. That's one approach. The other approach is working on your desire in the sense of allowing the girls to be beautiful. I mean, they've spent all that money dialing themselves up. Let them be that beautiful. But you don't want it. It's just another piece of fish. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful fish. And that there's also a cultural thing that if I can get her if I can get her to go all the way, if I can get something going, then that means that I'm lovely and desirable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. But the point is, is that you're lovely and desirable whether you get laid or not. Or you're ugly and not desirable whether you get laid or not. Getting laid or not is uh, is not the issue. And yet we do have that. It's part of our culture. That if you don't get laid, you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. But if you do get laid, you've screwed up. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's built right into our culture. Yeah. If you if trap. you don't get laid, yeah, the all the other guys are going to say, "Oh, you can't get laid. All oh, you're nothing. You're not a man." And if you do go get laid, now you're breaking a whole lot of rules. And so we need to see those things and recognize that we are influenced from our culture in both sides. And so you can examine those kind of thoughts. Are these thoughts that I'm having coming from culture? Are they coming from my genes? Mm -hmm. And you can or you can say, are they coming from Dhamma? Because Dhamma is going to say you can like it, but you don't have to want it that wanting it is the danger, wanting it and having to have it and pursuing it. And so this is why the Sadie Hawkins issue is such a valuable teaching tool for Western guys. That gives you much more of a chance of bonding with what comes by rather than having to pursue everything that you see. That you like. So this is the whole idea is to wake up and to recognize that a lot of the stuff is cultural and it's set up to be a lose-lose situation. It doesn't matter which way you go. You're not going to win this one. <laughs> okay, good to know. Hmm? Good to know. Yeah.
<laughs> and so the better thing is is to wash your hands of it and say, yeah, it's beautiful, but I don't need it. I don't like it. I don't have to like it or I like it, but I don't have to want it. Mm -hmm. That yeah. in fact, you could go so far as to say that at an instinctual level, we are run by our instincts because we are not operating out of wisdom. We do have wisdom capable, but we uh, are in the habit in our society of operating by instincts. If we had a wisdom oriented society, dress codes wouldn't be an issue. Makeup wouldn't be an industry. But it's because it's instinctual. Now, the whole point about instinct is there's two areas of it, and that is, is that there is survival of the individual, and then there is the survival of the species, and that's built right into our uh, genes. And one of the ways of describing that is to say, imagine that there was a society that was much more natural and that the people really didn't care that much about sex and having children. That it, I mean, there was just better things to do, like sit and breathe. have a conversation and read <laughs> or whatever. But sex was just not interesting. And then on the other hand, you have a culture that is highly sexualized. Which one of them, without any of the, um, let us say, medical industry, if there was no medical industry at all, and like in primitive times, these two societies, which one of them is going to gain in population and which one of them is going to die out? If that's the case, then that means that the people who were around today were around because they were products of a group of people who were overly highly sexualized. Yeah. And so we are actually a product of our genes. We are overly sexualized simply because that's who survived. And the people who are not overly sexualized, now we have medicine coming into the situation that turns everything upside down. <clears throat> that in fact, uh, the Catholic Church doesn't like it at all that Catholicism is waning and they blame it on the fact that Catholic women are not having enough Catholic children. That's why <laughs> Catholicism is against divorce. It's not because of the sanctity of life or souls or any of that kind of real religious stuff. It's purely a matter of politics. Yeah. That's why the Catholic Church is against abortion is because of politics. They want to have those babies because it gives them power and money. So, uh, but in our Western society now with medicine, women are beginning to see and wake up to the point that they have choices that they didn't have before. They have choices. They've got birth control. They have morning after pills. We even have now uh, abortion pills. They found that certain medicines that were used for other things winds up aborting fetuses. So all of these rednecks that are trying to make uh, abortion illegal so that they can continue to control women. I mean, after all, it's a patriarchal society. In a matriarchal society, abortion is not an issue. 
is only an issue in a patriarchal society where men are trying to control women. And the medical system now is making that very difficult for men to control women. The women have their own power now. And the men can't cause uh, or pass laws to control women without controlling everything. I mean, they're, now they're going to have to completely control Amazon because Amazon can deliver birth control pills. It, Amazon can deliver abortion pills. So with that, we can recognize that times are changing. Things are not going to last. I know a lot of people are quite upset about all of the rednecks uh, uh, changing and passing laws against abortion, but they're a little late for that. They're not Let's be able to control so. it. Pardon? Let's hope so. Well, it's not a matter of hope. It's a matter of looking at what's going on. Uh, at one time, you know, that uh, it was in Texas where they were passing uh, heavy-duty birth control laws that have, uh, they're still in the Supreme Court. But the first thing that happened was that there was a truck painted chartreuse green that went around dispensing abortion medicines in Dallas openly, mm -hmm. which gave them the Dallas guys, uh, um, uh, the politicians, the idea that we're going to have to put a stop to that. We can't just stop abortions because the abortions that we're trying to stop are medical procedures. And now we've got medical of uh, uh, pharmaceutical abortions available, we got to control that too. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, women are going to have the freedom to run their own bodies. And so, um, this part of the conversation, we can recognize then that part of what you and I are subject to is this old patriarchal idea that we have some say-so in the lives of women. Where in fact, we don't. That we'd be much better off if we would uh, give women the benefit of, the, uh, uh, of their own wisdom and, be, and let them be the boss. And you'll be just fine so long as you stay out of trouble and that um, going in hot pursuit is something that is dangerous. And if you recognize that, you can see the danger of it. Then you can also recognize that much of the attraction to it is both cultural and genes. The genes are there because of if nobody cared about sex at all, then the human race would die out. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm <laughs> saying that um, that the dogs do it. We still have dogs because they do, even though their their whole lives are almost nothing to do with sexuality. Occasionally, there is sexuality in the animal kingdom. That in mm. fact, it's almost an annual thing. This is what they mean by the uh, the spring is the time of new. That's because it, in the winter, 
all the animals are in the den. So the women or the, the females will get in heat in the winter, pup in the spring, and then the animal, the new baby pup, will have the whole summertime into the fall to grow up so he can handle his own winter. And this has been part of the uh, 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 the physiological way that animals have been operating ever since. That a dog, for instance, a female dog only has large mammary glands when it's time to feed puppies. Why is it that human women, females, have great breasts and that they're somehow supposed to be sexual? I don't see human female breast as sexual at all. Lucky you. That it, it, well, most of them, in fact, the big ones are only because the woman is either overweight and not healthy or because she's got silicon. Mm -hmm. But in either case, there's nothing sexy about it. Mm -hmm. I hope I can. Uh, but but I sexy. I'll practice to bear my thought in that direction. Well, breasts are sexy because they are enhanced sexually through clothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But in, in the time of India, the uh, let us go uh, the 1500s before the British came. Uh, the women of those days wore saris. Depending upon what caste they were in, in fact, the funny part about it is, is that the women in the lower caste have more cloth, more cloth in their sari than the uh, upper class women. But the sari was just wrapped as a skirt and then wrapped around, and the tits were exposed half the time one way or the other. The British came all sexualized about tits, and they start making the women in India wear halter bras. Now they're still very common. If you see an, uh, an Indian lady in a sari, she'll have also a halter bra on. And that was a British addition. Mm -hmm. The old Indian culture, breasts weren't sexual. The British added sexuality to, to breasts in India, and we know exactly when it happened in the 1600s. Mm -hmm. It also reminds me of the example of the that ankle showing was very sexual sexy in the victorian era ankles An yeah when, when women showed their ankles it was like very oh well fascinating. that's victorian times in fact they got so bad that uh the joke was is that even the legs of tables <laughs> would have cloth around them because they were legs I mean, how <laughs> stupidly sexual can you do that? I mean, <laughs> the legs of tables. But in fact, you can look at the leg of, of certain tables from a certain period, and they do look like female legs. <laughs> the way that they cut and carve the wood so that they've got an angle to them and down, and you've got a little foot there and all of that kind of stuff, and they're highly reminiscent of sexuality. Mm. This is this is the... Uh, and so... Much of our culture is based upon hyping it up, making it desirable, and then making it forbidden. Mm -hmm. And you're caught in that. And you can use that to your advantage in the sense that, oh, 
Well, I didn't want it anyway. <laughs> then I'm okay now. I don't have to go get something just because my genes are active. Mm. But just because my eye door is not being guarded. So you can start guarding the eye door or you can start guarding the mind door in the sense of you can look at it and like it. And if you if you can't uh, uh, like it and not want it, then don't look at it. Mm. But you can look at it if you're wise, you can look at it and like it, but not want it. Yeah. I've been, think, I've been thinking of carrying a sleeping mask sometimes. Sorry, say again. I've been thinking of carrying a sleeping mask to pull out sometimes and uh, oh, guard my head automatically. Okay, all right, right. Uh, a sleeping mask. No, you can use your eyelids. You don't need a piece of cloth to come down. You can look down. You can guard the eye door by looking down. You don't have to look out and gawk and what's that over there. You can just hold your eyes down. That that, in fact, is the training of monks going on Bendabot. To look three or four to six feet in front of you. Keep your eye on the path. Watch where you're going in the sense of what's immediately available. Watch where you're stepping as opposed to having your eyes all akimbo. All, all, all looking around. No, just keep your eyes down. That's a good tip. Because mm -hmm. you're not looking for something. Why are you out looking? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of watching where you're going. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we're, uh, I'm always looking for something. Mm -hmm. So you can begin to recognize that you don't have to go look for something because you're already okay. Mm -hmm. You don't need anything. You don't need all of that bucket of fish. You're okay already. So you can either look and like and not want, or you can just temporarily stop looking. So try that for a while and see if that doesn't allow you to settle down a bit and become more comfortable rather than having an, oh, I've got to go travel. If okay. I go traveling, I can go find something. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thanks for being so thorough and patient with this. <laughs> Well, my issue was that you've already heard all of this before. This is nothing new. No, but you said that I could call without any reason. So I guess this is better than no reason. Yeah, this is good. I'm glad that you called. No problem with that. I enjoy. Yeah, thanks. Okay, well, we'll see you later. Good to see you again, Eric. Good to see you too.